morning, Petaluma. You are listening to KPCALP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM, online at kpcaf.fm. This is Talking with Rabbi Ted. I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman, the Rabbi at B'nai Israel Jewish Center here in Petaluma and the chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council, here for some wonderful conversations with community leaders who make a difference in our lives. Uh, during our second segment today, we'll be meeting with Gary Callahan, the superintendent of Petaluma, Petaluma City Schools. And here in our studio right now is David Rabbit, county supervisor for our district for Petaluma. Welcome to the studio. Oh, thanks for having me, Ted. Really it's, appreciate it. It's great to have you here. And um, I know this is a hot election year for you, right? Yeah, I, I had a... Uh, had a stellar opponent. Um, actually, feel blessed to uh, run unopposed, and uh, you know, uh, it's just been uh, it's been great to be able, especially the year of everything happening in the county in terms of the fires and the fire recovery, to not have to uh, divert attention to a campaign. Yeah, I, I've always imagined that for those incumbents who are running for re-election, the campaigns can be a major distraction and take away from. Oh, for sure. Daily I mean, business yeah, of the, the truth, world. The yeah. truth of the matter is, the first time I ran, it was uh, I was uh, obviously just working to make a living, uh, but really had more flexibility in my own time. Uh, but once you're in office, you have the obligation to do the office work as well as trying to uh, let people know what you've done and why you should get reelected. So how did you get into this public service business? You were sitting behind your desk, an architect. Did you do commercial architecture or how's it what, what and then how yeah. did you get into this? Well, if you ask my wife, uh, no one would have ever imagined uh, that I would ever get myself in this position as running for office. But one thing always leads to another. Uh-huh. Um, and I, I personally, I just got involved uh, when my kids were born, getting involved in local schools. One thing led to another. Uh, I was always uh, engaged in what was happening. I was always, uh, I, uh, I really blame that on my, my mother. Uh, was a big news junkie, and uh, it rubbed off on me, so I was always kind of, uh, you know, I'd read several newspapers a day and try to keep up on the current events. Uh, and again, when my uh, kids were in school, my oldest is now 27, when she was, I think, in kindergarten, I was PTA president and did that for a couple years. That leads to some district issues. That led to um, some parcel tax issues that we were successful on. Uh, that led then to, in later years, more youth sports and then parks and then city issues and as an architect uh, on the design review board. And um, I just stepped up and ran in 2006 for the Petaluma City Council, really uh, because there were very few playing fields on the west side of town. We were losing our little league fields and um, wanted to have a place to play. And uh, then halfway through that term, the recession hits in 2008. Can't really push for parks when we uh, are having a hard time keeping police, fire, and of course, central services going. Um, and so uh, I realized through that term, though, uh, that I really liked what I was doing, really uh, loved the engagement and the policy and, uh, uh, in that regard and uh, decided that I uh, wanted to carry on. It was actually my wife who told me that I really uh, enjoyed that because I was debating what to you do. you always listen to your wife? I always listen okay, to my wife. She is, <laughs> <laughs> okay. I am, uh, she is a wise woman. So, uh, you know, I, I feel fortunate. Uh, I'm an architect by profession. I still draw. Now I draw more for fun 
I have a family that's still building down in uh, San Francisco way, so I'm engaged a little bit in what they do, but uh, not in the same professional capacity. Um, so I get the best of both worlds right now, and I feel very fortunate. I wonder if there are any studies on uh, leadership and what the youth of the leaders are like compared to others. Because you know, I was president of my youth group, and I've been president of this council and doing that my whole life. And what, what happens to us in those early stages, uh, biologically, psychologically, to put us and want us to be able to serve and to be in a public position? It's kind of fascinating in many ways to watch people's journey in life. Did you grow up here in Petaluma? I grew up, I was born and raised in San Francisco. A and, suburb uh, of Petaluma. A suburb, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, we moved north uh, when we bought our first house. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, my parents at that time were in Marin County, and uh, we looked through Marin and then uh, kind of came over the border to the house that we could afford, thinking that eventually we'll move back towards Marin. And, but that never happened, of course, and I'm, uh, I'm grateful that it never did, uh, that we made the decision to stay here. Once we had uh, children and really uh, become more planted in the community, uh, this was home uh, from, you know, the get-go, and uh, this is where we wanted to be. Good, good. Well, so I think um, this week, of course, uh, today is October 11th, and one year ago at this time we were in chaos in, in our county and in the neighboring counties with the fires, the wildfires. So what, what's this been like for you? I remember seeing you working at the shelter, and I was happy to be standing next to you and seeing what we could do to help people as many, many, many Petalumans were doing at that time. So um, what's what's this aftermath been like for you? Boy, you know, it's uh, it's been an emotional week, and I think that I've, uh, it's been an emotional time through this fire, and uh, knowing so many people that have lost homes that are still struggling to get them, really get them, their feet back under them, uh, get a uh, you know, whether they're fighting with insurance companies or just going through the angst. There's certainly the, as you know, the, the all the stages of grief that are out there uh, for loss. Um, and, you, you know, I think uh, uh, just this week in our, um, with Susan Gore and my colleague, you know, she lost her home and she's having a really hard time uh, being able to uh, get the numbers to work to rebuild the home on the site that they were at and, and just understanding that, uh how hard that is, especially at people in different stages of life. It's not what they expected or wanted to do, but they're faced with this reality. Um, not only that, obviously, with the loss of life that we've had and thinking back uh, to those days. And that those couple of weeks were uh, uh, really just anguishing. Uh, you know, I remember the worst thing I heard was after learning how many homes had been burnt uh, the next day, the fire uh, officials telling us it's going to get worse before it gets better. Mm-hmm. And thinking, how could it get worse than it is right now? Uh, you know, but we persevered, and uh, and as you know, and seeing you in the shelters as well, and Petaluma stepping up big time. Yeah, it's amazing. With, uh, I mean, I don't know how many numbers of shelters that we had. I think we had 7,000 people here at one time or another, uh, and the outpouring of uh, volunteerism, the outpouring of goods and services, and just people wanting to help their neighbor was really uh, a great a great thing. It was. It was. Um, is there an aftermath for the fires in Petaluma? What do you think? What, what effects? Obviously, we survived the fire part. Uh, we were part of the rescue system, but we saw the flames from a distance. We smelled the air. 
we were around traumatized people a lot, many, many, many volunteers in our community. Is there an aftermath here? And in the same, it's not the same as in Santa Rosa, yeah, it's obviously. Not, it's, but it's not the same, and I think we should make sure that we uh, remember what we all went through, uh, mm-hmm. being just 30 minutes north of us, and make sure that we, uh, uh, you know, the county, uh, boy, we have a 100, 250 uh, different items that we're addressing uh, through the, our recovery and resiliency plan that are really countywide issues. Uh, we saw where the shortcomings were. We saw what we did well. We saw that we things that we can do better and things that we need to improve on. Those will have direct effect for Petaluma and whatever, you know, God forbid, uh, it, maybe it won't be a fire. Maybe there'll be another an earthquake uh, could happen and we could be susceptible to similar circumstances. And we need to be prepared and uh, we know that. Um, we we had many things that worked very well, and again, uh, the, identifying those things that you could do better. And I think every, uh, from my perspective, and not to sound crass, but every disaster, you need to make sure that you come out of it better than where you went into right, it. Right. It exposed a lot of things in terms of what were you know, the housing crisis that we had before the uh, fire is now now only exasperated. Right. To that extent, I think that's different in Santa Rosa than it is felt here in Petaluma. Uh, Santa Rosa is dying to get some housing built as quickly as possible, and they're having a hard time for a variety of reasons, especially in uh, kind of the downtown core. Um, it, it, you know, I hate to say it, but there's not a housing crisis if you, uh, for a lot of people, if they already have a house. Oh, of course, of and, course. Yeah, and but in Petaluma, part of that crisis has been the elevation of prices. It's true, and it's not. It's a little. It's different. It's a different piece of the puzzle. But the elevation of prices, uh, being able to have housing for uh, workers in our community, teachers, everybody, it just has complicated uh, that piece of it, too. It definitely has. And we've talked about this before, that we're not alone in this. It's a a Bay Area crisis. It's really a California crisis, a housing crisis. We live in a beautiful place. A lot of people want to live here and are willing to live here and pay dearly for it. Um, But you're right. Uh, you know, we our workforce is commuting further and further distances, and uh, we need to address or at least confront the issue. One of the things I'm involved with, I'm president of the Bay Area Association of Counties, so that's the, or, I'm sorry, governments. Uh, that's the nine Bay Area counties, 106 cities, and you know, the housing crisis obviously is region-wide. Uh, there's a group uh, called CASA, which is uh, to basically to solve the housing crisis in the Bay Area. No big deal. Uh, oh, it's simple. No, it's simple. <laughs> but it's got the mayors of San Francisco, Oakland, San Jose. It's got uh, Facebook, Apple, Google, so some of the bigger corporations. It's got environmental representation, labor representation, um, San Francisco Foundation, the Silicon Valley Foundation. Really, you know, the status quo is not working. So what can we do differently to make sure that we can uh, move forward in that? There were some housing bills in Sacramento a year ago. Uh, some moved forward, some did not. This, uh, what will come out of this is called a compact that will be signed at the end of the year uh, by all these different folks that will then be handed off to Sacramento. It started with 50 items, and it's really about uh, preservation, uh, protection, and production, the three Ps. And it has something within each category, and the idea is to pass this off to Sacramento and then have state legislation follow. And there's something in there for everyone to hate, (laughs) as well as for everyone to love. Uh, Developers will have to do certain things differently, which they will not like. 
in exchange for getting some more surety in other areas. Cities will ha- lose some local control, which they will not like, in exchange for getting some dollars to be able to do some other things. And it's really trying to change the paradigm of how we've been doing housing and identifying uh, the, you know, the, the, the shortcomings uh, to the system that we have. We've made it very expensive. Uh, and, and sometimes, you know, look around town here, at the peak of our housing market that we have now with record high market rate uh, housing uh, rents, there's still empty lots. There's still empty parcels downtown that aren't moving forward uh, because they don't pencil out or the type of construction doesn't pencil out to what we would actually like it to be maybe a little more denser where the type of construction actually the going from wood frame to steel or concrete just doesn't work in our in our area uh, with the prices even though as high as they are now even though they, they don't uh, they don't pencil that's what Santa Rosa is facing they'd love to do uh, some more high-rise or medium rise development but it it's, it's hard to make it work uh, on the development side without having something come back into the fold and uh, without some other in- types of incentives. And another issue, of course, one is to build housing, but the other is to have affordable housing. And uh, that's a whole other complicated politics. Yeah, and that's all part of this uh, this CASA group as well, is to increase the uh, affordable housing side as well as market housing side, market rate. We have 3.8% of our housing stock in Sonoma County is affordable. It should be around 6 the reason it's not at six is because we don't build enough of the market rate housing that contributes to money to the affordable side. Mm-hmm. We've lost redevelopment, which is also another contributor right, to the right. affordable side. We, you know, I, one of the issues that CASA is dealing with, with is the in, inclusionary rate. Uh, and if you make it too high, you won't have a project. You, you might feel good and pat yourself on the back that you're pro-affordable housing, but if the inclusionary rate is so high that it actually uh, ruins the pro forma of the project, it's not going to get built, so you've not achieved much right. of anything. Right. So it's really trying to identify all those aspects and move forward. And New York City actually has a great uh, inclusionary uh, piece. They recognize that anything over about 11.5% is the tipping point for projects that won't get built. So if they're going to go past a certain percentage point, and you could debate what that, whether it's 11.5 to 12 to 15. Is that funds for affordable housing? Funds for affordable housing. Deed restricted affordable. Okay. So what they do is uh, do property tax forgiveness for a certain amount of years based upon what it is that you're going to exchange in return. So the higher number of, uh, you know, inclusionary percentage or the higher number of units, the longer the property tax relief is and then the the project pencils out. Because it's got to you got to get it built in order to get housing. Right, um, right. And yeah, I see that as uh, Judy Sakaki, I saw that uh, article that she's proposing that the school be able to purchase land to build housing for workers. Right. Housing for workers there. Right. And eventually to house 50% of the student population to offer affordable housing for them because otherwise it's impossible to get workers and students won't want to live around there if they can't afford the rents and yeah. all that kind of thing. And that goes to the whole world around us here. Schools have the schools have the ability to do that on their on school property. They're one of the only entities that really have uh, that right, which uh-huh. is interesting. But it's also not a, necessarily a new thing either. I know the Buck Center down in Nevada was trying to build some on-site housing for the fellows that they bring out that do the research in the building and uh, could never get that really going. Um, I know that uh, other private um, um, corporations and, and would like to do some housing 
I just met with uh, um, on the smart board. Smart has a, a, a hard time attracting train engineers uh, because of the housing costs here locally. We've increased the salaries, but that alone was not uh, doing it. It's really trying to find that um, uh, where can we put that housing that would work, the workforce housing. Uh, you know, if, if you don't house them here, they're going to be, uh, the, our traffic will never improve because they're going to be moving in from, you know, Lake or Mendocino counties. It's, uh, we'll keep working on it. It's a, it's a major agenda item, I know, for, uh, for our government leaders. And also another item on the agenda of our government leaders is, uh, is uh, pavement outside the window here. And the streets and the roads and the infrastructure from that point of view. And Prop 6 is coming up. What do you, uh, <laughs> I, I understood you have an opinion. I do have an opinion. Okay. And, uh, it comes from, uh, you know, I could tell you in my second, in my first year in office, we, we, we tackled pensions. Uh, we did a pension report and we kind of identified how we got to where we got and, and what actions we needed to take. And that, that was actually the year before the governor put in PEPRA. So we actually benefited, the county benefited from that work to the tune of about $145 million savings. And that was a great thing. And that's ongoing. The second year, we did a road study. How did our roads get to the point that they're at now? How should they be funded? What can we do short term and long term? And I'll give you my road spiel. Um, here in Sonoma County, at least, are the way that roads are funded primarily through the gas tax. The gas tax hadn't been raised for 18 years. You can imagine that the, uh, the, uh, the dollar was worth about half of what it once was. Price of oil, and which is used in asphalt, was going up. Not only that, in 18 years' time, you had better fuel-efficient cars, uh, more electric cars, hybrids, uh, and gas. We're losing about $400 million a year right there in terms of the gas tax. Gas tax formula, the state keeps 56%. The other 44% is equally distributed to cities and counties. Cities get their dollars, the 22% of their do, uh, of that dollar, based upon per capita. So it's just strictly population, no argument there. The counties, the 58 counties, get their dollars based upon this formula that really disadvantages Sonoma County. It's 75% on population, 25% on uh, road miles. Here we have a county of half a million with 1,380 miles of roads, the most in the Bay Area, uh, partly because we have great community um, uh, or urban growth boundaries, community separators, and whatever our development history was, we have a lot of roads out there. So we started, uh, when I was first elected, we had $2 million a year into uh, paving. Uh, I'm proud to say now that uh, that's moved up to about $14 million a year, and this year alone we're paving 97 miles. Uh, we've paved over 400 miles. The city of Petaluma has 271 miles of road, so we've paved 400 miles in the last five years in the county, and we've increased actually increased our pavement condition index through the report that just came out through MTC. Not as high as we'd like. We're still down at the bottom rung, but our primary road network is actually in very good shape. It's the rural residential roads, those roads that go off to a couple different houses up in the hills or up and out in the areas um, that are in bad shape that we need to continue to work on. Uh, Prop 6 will add $19 million all told to the county in terms of road uh, pavement. $12 million to the unincorporated county, the Sonoma County itself, and it's going to be split, and we've already decided this, $6 million towards uh, maintenance, because you got to take care of what you pave, and $6 million on top of that 14 to go to $20 million uh, for pavement, which would increase that uh, miles being paved and, and move us into that area that we all want to be where our roads are going to be in better shape. Petaluma, uh, much the same. Uh, there's not another source of dollars 
for road paving. It, it really is a user fee, a gas tax, and if we don't increase it, and if we want to, you know, um, Prop 6 really sets us back, I believe, generations. Not only that, our uh, freeway widening project is going to receive $85 million, uh, from Prop 6 uh, or through SB1 funds, which Prop 6 is trying to rescind. Um, so if you don't want the freeway widened and if you want to drive on gravel, go ahead and vote for it. If you think that uh, roads and transportation are important uh, to the community and to yourself, uh, make sure that you do vote no on Prop 6. Okay, thank you. I think that uh, I was driving down Petaluma Boulevard, and I'm trying to listen to something on the radio, but my yeah. wheels are bumping so loud, and I'm thinking about that. Is what is this about? You know, what is this about? And it's very, it's you know, here in Petaluma, of course, we're way down there in terms of uh, what our roads are like, and uh, it's important for us to uh, hear this message about that proposition. I've always wondered about that. I could take a, a minute or so on. The proposition system. When I moved to California 26 years ago, you know, I came from a state where this didn't happen, the proposition system. And at first it seemed like a wonderful thing, but then it got complicated. And, you know, for me to sit down and comprehend all of the voters' pamphlets that come out and the issues that are in there, it seems pretty hard. What, what do you think about this proposition system, just as a citizen of California and a voter here in our state. I think like uh, maybe like most people, it's kind of a love-hate thing. It's great that we have the ability to collect signatures and put something on the ballot and turn that into a law. Uh, the bad part is that, uh, well, anyone could do that, and you sometimes get these very special interest-led laws, or bad law for that matter. Uh, we had this in the cannabis, uh, the legalization of cannabis. The state was marching along trying to do it very methodically, and to really kind of understand the consequences of how this moves forward, all of a sudden, signatures are gathered, it gets passed, the state's not ready, the locals aren't ready, and it kind of blows up on you. Uh, to me, I mean, there's been other instances of, of that as well. While I think it's great that you can go out and gather signatures, it also lets uh, some bad things go forward or, or poorly written legislation that then you're dealing with for years to come. So, it's a mixed bag. And, it is. Uh, I remember feeling like some of the issues were so complicated, and I considered myself to be a little bit sophisticated in terms of reading some of this stuff. I elect officials and who have legislative assistance and ledge council in Sacramento and uh, other resources to help figure out the minutia that really have profound effects in the long term on some of these things that are passed. So. I've always wondered about that. That's been a uh, and, and, there, and there are instances where uh, that has happened. The uh, bills did not pass, or the uh, the proposals did not move forward, or the governor vetoed them, and then the proponents will go out and gather signatures and get it passed anyway. Right. So in spite of our own uh, kind of protections at Sacramento, it'll go forward. And again, you know, it's wonderful if it's a, uh, an issue that we all care deeply about that's written well. Um, but many times they're not written well, and we're stuck with the consequences. And any view on the national pot without getting into names and the, you know all that kind of? You don't have to tweet any time during this program. Um, the effects that uh, on Sonoma County, on our politic here, uh, on community relations. Any thoughts yeah, on that? You know, I think uh, obviously I. Um, uh, extremely disappointed in the in the discourse, <laughs> yeah. to say the least. 
of uh, what's happening at the national level. And, uh, you know, one of the reasons I, I ran for office was I, I love policy. I love having a debate about policy. And you tell me your reasons why we should go one direction, and I'll make an argument the other way. And we may agree to disagree, but, you know, more times than not, we live next door to each other. We're moving forward right. and all for the common good. And um, certainly it's gone beyond partisanship. It seems to be very tribal. I've heard right, that right. a lot in the last couple of weeks, and it's kind of true. Um, you know, we need, to, we need to continue to work together uh, to figure out these issues. There's some daunting uh, issues that we all need to grapple with, but we need to do it as adults uh, and not revert to name-calling and be personal about it, but really just talk about the pros and cons of the issue, how we should move forward, and uh, what's going to be best for the majority of our citizens. I agree with you, and I hope that our county can always keep itself and our cities locally here, keep ourselves at the civil level of uh, using the democratic processes the way I've, most of us believe they were meant to be and they're meant to happen. I think that's important. So this week is uh, also a celebration for the county with the opening of the regional park. Fifteen years in the making. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, there's so many people to thank for that, and that's certainly Tole uh, uh, Lake Regional Park. Um, it's going to be the largest park in the entire uh, regional park system. Uh-huh. Uh, it's going to be wonderful. It's o- opening on October 27th. Oh, okay. So I think uh, this coming weekend is going to be the fall festival. So if you get out there uh, with the kids, uh, there's two weekends of the fall festival, and then the 27th. Uh, will be the official opening of the park. Well, in springtime, we're going to have a, uh, a formal dedication, and we can thank uh, more people. The tribe has actually been wonderful, the Grayton tribe, and they're going to have an, uh, eventually an interpretive center there because the place is so full of uh, wonderful history, and the tribe has uh, stepped up and wants to tell its story there, and I think that's a great thing as well. Where is this park? It is off of Lakeville, uh, uh, Cannon Lane. If you drive down Lakeville Highway, uh, toward take 37. A, toward 37, take uh-huh. a, a left up on Cannon Lane, which is actually, we just approved uh, to be widened a little bit and repaved. Uh, it, it's wonderful as you go up and over the hill and down into this valley. Um, it's very peaceful, quiet, wonderful views, and a great history of the park. I think it's going to be a gem uh, of the regional park system and should be uh, attracting people from not only Sonoma County, but throughout the uh, Bay Area. Well, I hope that that will be a place where you can go and feel proud of your role on the Board of Supervisors that you finally reached this conclusion after 15 years. (laughs) And I want to thank you very much for coming into our studio today and sharing your thoughts about the various things. It's amazing how much we can solve in 27 minutes sitting right here. Isn't that amazing? It's, it's wonderful. It's always great talking to you, Ted. I Thank always you. appreciate it. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thank you for listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted, KPCALP, Petaluma, California.
morning, Petaluma, again. Welcome back to Talking with Rabbi Ted. You're listening to KPCALP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM, online at kpca.fm. So welcome to the second segment of this week's program. Our guest is Gary Callahan, who's the superintendent of the Petaluma City Schools. And uh, it's great to have you here in the studio today. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks, Rabbi. Yeah, so um, while we're switching gears from county politics to the education of our children, and uh, how many children in the city schools? We have about 7,500 students. Yeah, so that's a lot. So before we get into the school stuff, I'd like to learn a little bit about you and where you come from and your background, and uh, maybe you could share your resume with us for a few minutes. Sure, just tell you a little bit about me. You know, this is my 29th year in education. It's been an incredible ride. Um, you know, some would say I was blessed or cursed with being the son of two educators. Um, but what I learned, and I'm, my, my experience is similar to the experience of a lot of Californians. It's one of the, the, the immigrant experience. Um, my families um, and what their experience took them through really changed the trajectory of our entire family. And um, so maybe a little bit about that is um, both my mom and dad um, were um, sons and daughters of immigrants. My mother um, was the daughter of Rose Guzman and, and Juan Gonzalez, and she was married. Rose was at the ripe age of 13. Mm. On my father's side, he was his family were immigrants from Ireland, and my father's grand my grandfather worked his entire life in a laundry until he passed away at a very young age of 42. Um, if it was not for the caring uh, teachers who saw something in my mother and my father, uh, people who uh, they saw has had incredible potential to be outstanding um, community and citizens and contributors to to the American experience, um, I don't think I would be the superintendent today. Mm -hmm. um, both of my parents, my mom and my dad, were the first generation of students that went to college. Um, that was relatively uh, a, a rare thing to see a, a young Latina going to college during the time she did. And for my father, um, he, was, he was the first trailblazer in his family. And so I like to think that they... Uh, they broke the cycle, so to speak, and they're no longer with, with us now, but uh, um, every single day when I'm uh, in my position as superintendent, I try to carry on those values that we have an opportunity to change the trajectory of all of our students, to find out where, what are their passions, what are their interests, where do they want to go, and make sure that we position themselves to get there. I'm just thinking, listening to your story and the fact that your parents were first generation of college students, and we have new generations of immigrants now, and hopefully producing some more first generation college students who will go on to a career of some sort in our world and to make our world better, just like you've chosen in your life and following the footsteps of your first generation college student parents. Well, I'm super proud of our, of our school district because um, they've made a commitment to educate the entire community. Um, when the budget cuts took place in 2009 and then again in 2011, and districts throughout the state and throughout Sonoma County um, 
cut their adult education programs. Um, so Petaluma took a hard look at that, and the Board of Trustees made the decision that that was an important resource that we couldn't lose. And so now we are 2018. We are the only school district in the entire, in all of Sonoma County, that offers an adult education mm -hmm. program. Mm -hmm. So because of that program, we have our resource center, family resource center at McDowell that specifically uh, works very closely with our our families and our immigrant families, our families that are coming primarily from Mexico, but also from some Asian uh, countries, and work with the, uh, those students and those parents of those students or, or the adult learners and helping them to um, be successful in, in, in Petaluma and getting them, you know, everything from workforce education to connecting them up with, um, you know, different uh, organizations throughout the community. Are the ESL classes under the auspices of the school district, or are they? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yes, and, and we work them all through our center. We've actually expanded our center at McDowell. Uh -huh. uh, and, um, in fact, we are two weeks from now. We're going to be doing a job fair specifically for um, um, Spanish-speaking families. Um, we have a number of positions uh, that are open in our, our school district. The economy is um, such in, in Sonoma County that we, we um, don't have a high unemployment rate. And so um, um, we want to reach out to all of our community to see um, um, what we, you know, hopefully they have, we have something to offer for a job and a career. Is it hard to find teachers these days and resources? We're getting a pretty good number of um, teacher applications each year, but as you know, um, for many, many years, um, the teacher pool was fairly dry, and it was dry because school districts weren't hiring, so um, teacher preparation programs were not um, getting candidates to come through. Um, right now, um, we're doing okay. Um, the numbers are starting to come back up, but... It's very difficult to be a teacher in all of Sonoma County and um, earn the wage that um, we're providing our teachers and be able to, to handle the cost of living increases that we're seeing. I, uh, David Rabbit and that we were just talking about the housing issues, particularly the housing, but it's cost of living even beyond housing. But that's certainly a major piece of it for the teachers. Yeah, it's a major piece. In fact, uh, um, just this week I was in a, a meeting with uh, Senators McGuire uh, and Dodd and Assemblyman Wood and Levine uh, talking about this very issue, about what can we do to increase the funding level for our teachers uh, across the board so that we can maintain a competitive salary. And I heard an interesting statistic this week from Senator Dodd, and he, he mentioned that they've actually done the, the numbers related to the um, pension increases, and they've put it in a per-pupil per expenditure. And as it relates to per-pupil expenditures, the uh, pension increases per student have gone up cost-wise from $498 per student to $1,500 per student. Um, and that's what we're seeing. We're seeing massive, massive increases. Um, and we're having some ways it was those pensions as part of the package for the teachers that attracted them to the profession, I would assume at one point, that that was the benefit of going into teaching was a, uh, a salary and a pension program for them in the long run. And now we're paying the price of uh, 
of that period of time. Absolutely, absolutely. And I, I think one thing that's important for the community to know about um, um, public educators, teachers, and administrators is they pay into their own pension system. They do not have the ability to ever pull out any dollars from Social Security. They weren't allowed to put money into Social Security. It's against the, it's against the uh, Social Security rules. They were required to put into a, um, the CalSTR system, um, and that's where they put their contributions for their retirement. So we, you know, we really owe it to to our to our teachers and our and our administrators to do do right by them and keep that system um, solvent. So thank you. That's that's really a very important point. I think many people don't know that piece. And uh, that's an important part that they've given up their Social Security benefits in order to be able to be part of this pension system. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's really very important. Um, what else? Um, any, you know, this is the week of the fire, and I just wondered if there's any aftermath in our school system to last year's fires. Has life moved on? Are there still issues that are around? Or And what's your take on that? You've been here, what, four years now? Four years. Right, yeah. yeah. We still see remnants of the fire in a variety of different um, um, school situations. Um, a lot of our counseling referrals have went up after the fire, and they've kind of maintained at that level. Um, we did a variety of different remembrance things this week. Each school has done something, something different. Um, it was amazing to see what happened in the community um, in spite of the tragedy that took place, um, we were the first evacuation center that opened up um, at Casa Grande High School um, the day after the, the fires. And we, our, our staff rallied and showed up in, in mass. What we were unprepared for at that particular time was the large influx of students that came. We did not send an outreach to our students. They just showed up. I want to help. What can I do? And it was wasn't just Casa Grande students that showed at Casa Grande. We had students from San Antonio, from Carpadium, from Sonoma Mountain, from Petaluma High, Petaluma Junior, Kenilworth. They showed because they needed to be there. And I think it speaks loudly to the quality of kids that we have in Petaluma. I think I mentioned to you that I was working at the Veterans Hall down Petaluma Boulevard and. There was a young woman there who was there almost every time I went in. I saw the article afterwards. I had no idea she was only 15 and came in from the school and had really been taking over uh, that part of welcoming people. She was the first person to welcome people into the shelter. And it was beautiful to, to see a student there take, participating in that. That was just uh, a great piece of, of that experience. And you have some teachers who lost homes. We did. We had uh, teachers. Staff, at least. Well, we had teachers and administrators. I believe it was um, six um, that lost lost their homes. And and we we our biggest impact probably was a lot of our families lost their jobs. They they were working and commuting in to Santa Rosa, and um, some of those individuals ended up leaving for positions outside of Sonoma County. A lot of them um, moved down to the Central Valley the valley areas, there were positions that were available there. So our impact, we did see some loss. We did not see, as the other um, smaller school districts see in Petaluma, we didn't see um, 
an influx of students coming in. We just saw people leaving the county. So among the many issues in education these days uh, is the issue of security in the schools and um, uh, you know what what position has the district taken on this and I know I, I don't like when reporters ask administrators questions like, what are you doing to provide security? Right. Because if you answer the question, you've just told the world. Right. What, right. So I, I'm not quite asking you that way. But I'm talking about the, the consciousness of security and, number one, its impact on the children and what they feel. I think I mentioned to you my daughter had a lockdown exercise last year. They told She was told there was a deer on the campus and... They had to lock the doors and turn off the lights, and you know she was basically okay. She understood that right. she didn't want the deer to walk in the room. But what's so? This is you know for parents and for our community. Whenever there's something occurring nationally somewhere else, it affects all of us here as parents and as community members. So what's what's happening with that piece of it? Well, we have a comprehensive safe schools plan, and at each school site, we review that throughout the school year in each school has procedures. Um, there are some pieces to that that, that are privy to just, obviously, um, our, our internal staff regarding um, situations should you have an intruder on campus or, or even just somebody that you don't recognize. Um, we have, you know, amped all of our uh, processes and procedures to make sure that um, we've made each one of our schools as safe as possible. We're very fortunate here because we have a close working relationship with uh, Petaluma Police Department. We did write a grant this year, um, a federally funded grant, and received approval for that, and we were able to reinstitute um, campus um, um, police officers, resource officers uh, at Casa Grande and Petaluma High School, but they also serve, they really serve the entire district, but they're housed at the two high schools. And um, they're doing a lot of uh, community-based partnership work with students. I think more than, more than more important than anything, what we're trying to work with with our students is to create a culture that when they see things that make them a bit uncomfortable, that they're going to go to responsible adults and share that information with that. And we believe that we've we've reached that with our students, um, but it's a continuous you know vigilant effort. Um, we're also doing a little bit of work with um, adding security cameras to our to our campuses. Um, some of that's um, more related less to um, campus safety than property damage. Unfortunately, we're having we are like other school districts having some issues with things that take place on the weekends, uh, vandalism, yeah, and those kinds of things. Yeah. Yeah. I've always, over all the years, every time I read, I used to read. Somebody broke into a school, and they had these things called typewriters. I don't know if you remember them. I do remember those. I remember, uh, you know, this school, 30 typewriters were walked off on one weekend in this in a school. And I, why would people? <laughs> because that's where they were in those days, yes, and the computers and all the resources. So there's some wonderful things happening in our school district. There are. The children and there the, are. the teachers. And tell us about some of the, the test scores and some of the other things that you would like to tout so our community knows that they're happening. Well, I think, I think first and foremost that I would want folks to know that their children are in very good hands. Um, we have some of the finest teachers and administrators in the state. Um, the cupboard is full in Petaluma City Schools. 
Some examples of that would be just in the last three years, um, we've had the State Administrator of the Year for the entire state of California for Q, which is Computer Using Educators. Um, in Sonoma County, each year they pick only one educator to be the um, Educator of the Year. It's a fairly intensive process. And two out of those three years, it's been a Petaluma City Schools teacher. Um, and this year, uh, the runner-up was from Petaluma City Schools, Phil Takata, up at Petaluma High School. Amazing teacher. Um, we have an Excellence in an Education Award winner, uh, American Literacy Corporation Outstanding Contributions Award winner. Um, we have two California Legal High Schools and Middle Schools Educators of the Year. Um, John Philip Souza Legion of Honor National Award winner and a California Gold Ribbon designation. And that's all been taking place in just the last three years. Um, one of our teachers, in fact, Laura Bradley, uh, who's at uh, Casa, Grande, uh, Casa Grande, Kenilworth, excuse me, she's working with PBS right now as a PBS digital innovator, all-star, and is leading professional development webinars throughout the nation. Um, PBS is actually flying Ms. Bradley to New York next weekend to work on the red carpet of their grand finale ep episode of the Great American Read series, which is going to air on October 28th. Um, she's one of our one of our teachers, um, and there are countless other Laura Bradleys out there doing amazing work for our kids. Test scores are up. Um, we have some of the highest graduation rates in Sonoma County. Um, and um, when we look at our CAST scores, they're also at the highest in Sonoma County. Still a lot of work to do. Um, you know, our goal in Petaluma City Schools ultimately is to develop effective communicators and critical thinkers. Um, and quite frankly, with everything that's taking place in the world, um, we need that. We need it in spades. And um, we're working very, very hard with our kids to really prepare them whether they choose to go straight into a two-year college, four-year college, or go the career pathway, that they have those requisite skills that they need to be successful. We call them passport skills because they're skills that you will carry throughout your life. And we want students to be nimble and able, knowing that most more likely than not, they're going to be in many, many different professions throughout their, their own careers. And, of course, we... Don't know what the future is going to look like, but as technology continues, the whole role of the human being relating to technology in our world is going to evolve. And uh, I think I was just reading Yuval Harari's book on 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, and he said he was talking about education, and he said that among the skills of communication is communication and critical thinking. Those are two of the components skills that our students really need to have to be able to confront a world where technology will become even stronger than it is today, things that we probably can't even envision uh, sitting here in 2018. So I appreciate that. Absolutely. And I, I, I would just add one piece to that. I think we, we societal, societal needs, um, and certainly one of the skills that we're looking at with for our students is part of being an effective communicator is being a critical listener mm -hmm. and really listening to, um, to others and being, being able to either build on someone else's ideas or at least acknowledge them 
and be able to talk to them. And that's really, really important skill, and we're working very hard with our students on that. Absolutely. In fact, we've had discussions on this program with people about critical listening and how important and how much better our world could be if we were all good uh, listeners in this world. So uh, that would be an important part. And, you know, I've, I notice, of course, that one teacher is often in a room with uh, between 20 and 30 students, and uh, these students are all there with different levels. And this the buzzword of differential education is out there about how the teacher addresses different levels within her classroom at the same time. So what, how does that mechanism work in the, in the classroom? Well, going back to my own experience, I, I typically had about 32 kids in my classrooms that I taught. Um, it's, it's, it starts with a real thoughtful um, assessment of each student. You have to know your students um, by name, by need. You have to be able to develop an individual relationship with each and every one of them, and they have to feel that. Um, it starts with the relationship piece first and foremost. You have to learn as much as you, you can about that student. Um, and, and their learning styles. And from there, that forms the basis for developing a blueprint for your class. So when you know where students are at certain levels or how their learning styles are, say for a math class, then you're able to tailor, tailor your instruction accordingly. Um, but it all starts first with, if you don't understand the individual needs of your students, how do you develop a blueprint for instruction? And some of our students, uh, I think the schools are mandated to take special needs children into the classrooms. Yes. And to give them a uh, regular experience of our, our school system. And you were talking to me about how the funding works because I know some of them have teachers who sit with them uh, during the course of a day. Do you care to comment on that? Well, some students, uh, the goal of, a, of special education is to place the students in the least restrictive environment an environment that essentially is going to allow them to be successful with as much independence as possible. Um, it, because ultimately, when they graduate, um, you want to be able to put them in footing that they can be successful with what, how, whatever they decide to do for the rest of their, their, their adult lives. Um, it's a challenge because the resources that we provide to each student is really dependent on their needs. And... Um, there really isn't a budget for that. We, we provide what we need to provide them. Um, so regardless of what we receive from the state, um, we're going to provide those services. Right. right now in our budget, we, we run about an $85 million budget. And of that, there's about $8 million of that that is allocated specifically to address the needs of our special education students. That's $8 million above and beyond what we receive from the federal government uh -huh, wow. to educate them. But we are required by law to do that. With whatever, by all means necessary, make sure that they have a successful educational experience. I, I think you would put out uh, a number of seventy-five dollars to $100,000 per year for such a student to, to be able to handle them within the system? You could have us. We, we do have situations of students that attend, um, that are our students that attend um, non-public schools where we're paying those types of yeah. uh, figures. Yeah. It's, um, the funding systems are complicated for education. There are many streams. and uh, Any relationship between um, the school district and the Federal Department of Education? Or any of the politics from that get 
down into our system at all? Not too much. It's really there. There's really a disconnect between what's taking place federally and what's taking place, uh, you know, at the local level. Uh-huh. Um, you know, California um, tends to um, be fairly independent from the federal, from the Department of Education at the federal level. And uh, our teachers, how are our teachers doing? There have been issues over the years and all that. So I just thought to check in with you. They're obviously the front line with our children and a very vital, vital, vital part of uh, our education system. Well, our te- you know, our teachers are amazing. Um, you know, we're, we're working on our negotiations right now. Um, compensation for teachers will always be an issue. Um, and we're continuing to work on it. You know, we've given raises the last four years, consecutive years since I've been the superintendent, but could you ever possibly pay a teacher, a great teacher, what they're worth? I'm not, I'm not sure you can, um, but we're, we're doing our darndest. Um, you know, the current board and myself have been up in Sacramento um, fighting the good fight. Um, we continue to do that. Um, there was an exciting uh, bill, uh, AB 2808, that was going to significantly increase funding for um, school districts. California is the fifth largest, you know, economy in the world, and we're 46th in in, in just states in educational funding. Um, that goal of that was to try to get it down to maybe 25th, just try to get us somewhere in the middle. Um, that would address a lot of the issues that we have related to what, what we just spoke on, special education, compensation for teachers, pension pension issues. Um, we're still hopeful um, that the forum that I mentioned earlier, talking to the senators and the assemblymen, uh, they encouraged us to bring these issues back with the new governor, and we will. We we're, But our teachers are, um, they're, they're the lifeblood of, of our, our organization, and they help drive home the important things that we want to get across to our Absolutely. students. I've always been amazed, and I probably have given numbers of sermons over the years about how come we will pay sports figures and entertainment figures yes. these exorbitant fees and um, incomes and all that, but the most important links for our children through education we struggle so hard to compensate them appropriately for what they mean in the lives of our children. Absolutely. Well, I want to thank you very much for joining us on this morning. The 27 minutes goes quickly. It was a pleasure. And filling in uh, for our community a little bit of information about our school district. And uh, wish you well in your continued work uh, with the Petaluma City Schools. Well, thank, thank you so much. You've been listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted at KPCALP, Petaluma, California, 103.3 FM. I look forward to your joining us for our next segment. Yeah, I like boating on the Petaluma River and seeing stars at the RFO in the 
can catch our show at 2.30 every Sunday. Are you looking for an alternative to the usual political punditry? With Free Range Radio, KPCA, look no further. Given the day of the week, local programmers delve into such topics as Pilates, mental health, and even independent journalism with guests that evoke honest and open discussions. Tune in at 103.3 FM or online at kpca.fm. Feel like you're beginning to slouch? Starting to hear creaks and pops in your joints? Then All Things Pilates is for you. Instructors and health practitioners join me as we teach you how to move with strength and ease. You'll be educated about the two main approaches to Pilates, classical and contemporary. I'm Darian Gold. Please tune in Sundays at 2 p.m. on Free Range Radio, KPCA 103.3 FM. Are you tired of the mainstream tunes that other stations play over the airwaves? I'm sure you crave more diversity. KPCA LP, Petaluma, California.